0: Strong leaders make for strong companies. And one of the critical steps in defining the purpose of a company is creating a corporate culture that makes your goals achievable. Once you've defined your purpose, use it as a screen or a filter to make hiring decisions.
1: The culture of a business is built
0: by the first 10 to 15 employees in the first six months of life. That's David Velez. He's the founding CEO of NewBank in Brazil. It's the world's largest digital bank, and it has some 48 million customers across Latin America.
1: Those first six months, those first 10 employees are really critical in building the key basis of that culture. And it's a bit like for whoever has kids, the early years of development, right? In those, the first five, 10 years when you're dealing with your kids, when you're teaching those values. I, 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 sometimes I hear from some CEOs that I'm very busy about building my culture. When we become a unicorn, then I'll care about that. And it's a little bit like saying i'm too busy to educate my kids by the turn by the time they turn 18 i'll start working educating forget it it's too late
0: hi everyone i'm ranjay gulati a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. And this is Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. Like a lot of top CEOs we meet in this series, David Velez comes from a family of entrepreneurs, people who believe it's best to be your own boss. David was born in Colombia, but his parents moved to Costa Rica when he was a boy to get away from rampant drug gang violence at home. As a kid, David worked in his father's button factory and on the family farm. That's where he started his first venture at the age of 12, raising the money he would eventually use to go to Stanford University.
1: I decided that the best investment and the best startup I could do was buying a pair of cows because the cows multiply themselves. And so my dad had six cows. I convinced him to to let me buy one. I bought one. And then from 12 to 18, that cow became another six cows, and that was kind of the entryway or understanding of compound interest. So uh, obviously, my that was nice enough that he didn't make me pay any expenses, no veterinary, no food. So ultimately, this became actually a really good business. And and I sold them when I was 18. When I went to school, I went to, went to Stanford. I wanted to. I was always very fascinated given entrepreneurship with the story of Silicon Valley and the people that have built great companies that were building it around the area. So uh, so decided to go there. I was determined to find a, a, a business idea in my first couple of years at Stanford. The years passed by and I had no idea how to even begin. I did not have that great insight. I did not have that great startup idea. So to my own disappointment at the time, I decided to go to Wall Street and take an investment banking job uh, during my junior summer internship.
0: Turns out he liked it. So after graduation, David worked in banking, then private equity. He ended up in Brazil, scouting opportunities for the investment firms, Sequoia Capital and General Atlantic. All the while, he wanted to start something of his own, something that would be big. His eye was on financial services. First, it was a really interesting
1: market because it is the largest market. There's nothing bigger in Latin. When you look at who are the biggest companies in Brazil, their banks, the biggest company in Mexico, their banks, in Colombia, their banks. So, from a sheer size perspective, with these very, very large organizations, these were organizations that through good times and bad times generated an incredible amount of money. They were most, some of the most profitable financial institutions in the world. And uh, in 2012, when I went back to Brazil, I had one experience that that I always think that it was a bit of the catalyst to to help me go and, and, and identify the opportunity. I had to go open a bank account in Faria Lima. This Faria Lima is sort of the, the downtown. It's almost like the equivalent of the Wall Street of Latin America. In one of the very nice branch of one of the largest banks, and I had to go through that experience that I t- often tell about. That uh, it looked more like a prison than a nice place where you're welcome as a customer i had to go through a bulletproof door that had two armed guards since i had my cell phone in my pocket the alarm started sounding because i had metals the guards came out of the branch they grabbed me they asked me to put all my stuff in a locker outside the branch to then come back in then waiting 45 minutes to talk to somebody that had no interest really in helping me and he clearly let me know with his attitude And then that was the beginning of a four-month process of going back again and again and again, and finally getting a simple bank account that charged me hundreds of dollars a year and charged one of the highest interest rates in the world. I was really, I was enraged by that experience. I was very frustrated with the probably 30 hours of time that I did not have that I had to invest in that experience. And so when I combined that insight of how bad the user experience was, with the original insight that this is the largest bank, these are the most profitable industry in Latin America. That seemed to me like a really interesting opportunity because I couldn't understand how are people putting up with this? And if their margins are so big, why isn't anybody competing with those big banks? Why isn't anybody trying to challenge these very established incumbents?
0: But David, a first time entrepreneur, I would imagine would start small with a small idea, you know, maybe buy a few more cows or, you know, or maybe build a button factory, you know, buttons really well in Brazil, but you're saying, I want to build a bank. That just sounds really hard. I mean, that's like a uh, taking on the behemoths of banking. These are big companies with large pockets and they can snuff you out in a second. And, and, I think that
1: was one of the main reasons why I, why I wanted to do that. Uh, and and I'll, I'll tell you why. During the time, there was the earliest beginnings of tech entrepreneurship in Brazil. And I remember seeing a model of the Groupon of Brazil. It was a very popular model that everybody was starting. At some point, there were 3,000 clones of Groupon in Brazil. And this happened over six month period. Uh, there were a lot of clones of Amazon in Brazil, a lot of e commerce clones, a lot of undifferentiated businesses that in six months you had a ton of competition. And as I thought about what I wanted to do, and I thought about it doing it from like an investor perspective, I was not, had never been an operator, but I had worked as an investor in entrepreneurship is effectively the biggest investment you're going to do, right? You're not only investing your money, you're investing your time, and you're all in. You're putting all the X in. The, in one basket. So to me, that meant that I had to find something that was very hard to do so that I would have less competition that uh, had significant impact because I was ready to dedicate the next decade or plus of my life on something. It might as well be something impactful that made a difference versus something easy that everybody could copy. And by this point, I think I had kind of getting to a a bit of an understanding of of what really motivated me and had come to a conclusion that I was very much motivated by by the size of the challenge and by the level of impact. And and to me, while everybody told me this is impossible, I thought it was the single most impactful thing I could imagine. I, I would ask me the question, what is more impactful, what is hardest to do in Latin America than starting a bank from scratch? And there was nothing, there was no answer to that question. It was the hardest thing that I could possibly imagine. And and so to me, that was very motivating. And When I started talking to a lot of the local experts in the industry, I had a lot of conventional wisdom. People saying David, you're not Brazilian. You have no idea what you're doing. Uh, The big banks are gonna crush you. Uh, It's, it cannot work. One of the big banks, Unibanco tried a digital bank in 1999 and they failed and that's why you're going to fail. And so there were a lot of these arguments and there was just a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear in the environment about competing with, with these big banks. And that's why nobody had even tried it to do. And ultimately that, that, that bad experience that I had gone through that everybody in Brazil could relate to was real, was there. And people just were ready. Basically what I had to bet is that we were able to execute and that people were going to be like to be treated better and pay less fees
0: how do you find the confidence? I mean, who, was there anybody who believed in you? You didn't have some investors you were able to convince to invest in you. Were there others who, were, what was your support system to kind of convince yourself that you could actually do this?
1: Yeah, so I, uh, it was a tough because I heard a lot of no's, especially from the experts. A lot of the local experts, the, the former CEO of a Brazilian bank, the expert in banking, all of them were basically saying no impossible and they had their own arguments but i I would really listen carefully to those arguments i just i was just not bought in because i was very i was developing a lot of conviction of how digital and technology could fundamentally alter this industry and provide better products at lower cost but then i was very lucky to go back to sequoia to my former boss and and present it to him and his first reaction is like well this seems interesting but we don't do seed investments in Brazil. We don't know anything about banks. And maybe I'll invest because I like you, but this is not a Sequoia investment. But then I spent a week talking to a number of different partners at Sequoia. And after that week, I had to present the entire partnership and they came back and said, we're in. We wanna invest, uh, you should, we wanna invest a million dollars and we think you should, ha- you should try to find a local investor for another million dollars. And I went and looked for Casic Ventures. Casic was uh, the former uh, uh, startup founders of Mercado Libre. I knew them very well from General Atlantic, presenting to them, they also liked it. And with that, that was enough. So while I got 30, na- 30 no's, I got two yeses that mattered a lot, that gave a lot of support. And also I have been able to develop a lot of conviction about this and, and ultimately felt that I had to give it a shot.
0: The plan from the start was to be a totally digital bank, skip the bank branches with their security doors and relentless bureaucracy.
1: And the basic insight was these branches and this infrastructure and this huge hierarchy of the big banks is just too expensive. Today, just to give you one data point, today we have 54 million customers that we serve with about 6,000 employees. Our competitors in Brazil have also around 50 million customers and they have over 100,000 employees. So we can serve the same amount of customers today than they do with 20x more efficiency per employee.
0: David tells the story of a visit to Faria Lima Avenue in Sao Paulo. It's a financial hub in the city's downtown.
1: I walked from one side of the Faria Lima to the other side. I counted 94 branches of five banks. There were corners that have four branches of the same bank. It was insane. It's like how can a competitive industry, what kind of margins do you have to have to be able to afford that kind of inefficiency where you have four big branches in the same corner? So there was clearly very large margins and there was clearly a lot of inefficiency. And so the the bet, as I said, was being a full digital bank, fully focused on the consumer with no branches and much more efficiency. We didn't have a banking license initially. Uh, so we had to figure out a strategy to begin in one product and then become multi-product. Eventually, getting a banking license. So we started with credit card as a first product. That credit card was a great product to build a consumer brand, to start developing a, a muscle around credit. Credit as a skill set is probably the single most important skill set in financial services in Latin America. It represents 70% of all the profits of the system. So since day one, we had a product that had real profitability, that had a real business model. And uh, we used that credit card as, a, as an entry path to then offering a number of our financial services products, ultimately getting a banking license and ultimately offering a bunch of different products. So how do we make money? We make money basically three ways. We, have, uh, we make money through interchange. Every time a customer uses the credit card, we get something around 1.5% of every transaction from the merchants. Then when customers finance themselves with the credit card, we charge an interest rate. And then we have uh, fees. We charge fees of the products that we cross-sell. So we cross-sell investment products, insurance products, and a number of other products uh, that we ultimately end up uh, cross-selling to all our users. So
0: David, there's no rocket science here. I mean, anybody could do it. This is not like some sophisticated algorithm that nobody can copy you, right? Interchange fees, cross-selling products, offering digital services. Why did nobody come chasing you? Well, I
1: would say, I think the, the, the basic insight is clear, but frankly, it's the same basic insight that any technology company or digital company had, right? You would think about Amazon the same way. It's so easy to launch books online. Why isn't there anybody copying? Or... Netflix, it's easy to have a bunch of content that you deliver online. Similarly here is easy to be a fully digital financial services platform and deliver those product digitally. What is hard about that? It's hard, number one, to build a, a, a culture that is consumer obsessed because ultimately that's what drives product development and that's what drives uh, a user acquisition that is effectively zero. All our growth has been viral. We have spent effectively no money on marketing. And that's because we decided to, instead of investing a ton of money on TV or or Google or Facebook, we decided to invest in customer service so that consumers have such a great experience that then they ultimately would grow uh, very, very fast through word of mouth. The other parts that I think was ultimately hard is is in financial service, at least credit underwriting is, is fundamentally hard. That's where a lot of the AI and machine learning comes into play. Credit is a bit like playing with fire. You can do great things with fire, but you can also get burned really badly. And that's why most fintechs globally, or even most neobanks started with payments first, and then they went to credit. We are very unique in that we decided to start with credit first, and then we went to payments. And that meant that we had to be very, very good at credit underwriting that forced us to go get some of the best credit talent in the world, which we brought from Capital One, built very sophisticated data, infrastructure on the cloud that can process over 9,000 different variables to be able to give the right limit to the right person at the right time, be able to really underwrite risk at the n equals one and not what the banks do, which is effectively everybody gets the same line, everybody gets the same interest rate. So that the, the, the entire managing credit at a very large pace and very high growth through a lot of data, that is probably the most sophisticated, technically complex part of, of what we do today.
0: The partners decided to focus their attack not so much on the competitors, but at the complexity in the banking system.
1: And if we fought the complexity, we're going to be able to empower people and create 100, 200, 500 million Latin American consumers that were more empowered in their daily lives, to be making better decisions and to ultimately be be living a better life. And so that has been the North Star since those early days. And I think he served us very well because when we interviewed the next candidate, when we go from 15 to 100 or to 1,000 or to 5,000, people come and talk to us like, why do I need to go to Bank?" It's like, no, 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 you're not coming here to sell credit cards. You're coming here to empower 500 million consumers, to really change society,
0: to bring more competition to these industries. Attracting the right talent is essential to any new business venture, but especially in the kind of fiercely competitive field as banking and financial services. David Velez says Newbank's crusade against complexity helped him recruit great people. So one definitely
1: one insight or one uh, principle that, 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 that we had at the beginning was that it was going to be really important to build that, a, a team that had a lot of diversity of knowledge and experience. I remember one conversation that I had with one of the partners at Sequoia who told me very candidly that it seems like a great opportunity, but you don't have the background to build this. And it was a bit of a, a punch, a low blow, but I really thank him for that type of kind of feedback because that forced me to say that he's totally right. We, I got to find people that to bring on board that have the level of experience and skills that I don't have. And my two co-founders, I, I look for them specifically to do that. There were two key gaps that I had in that initial team. And so it's been a process for the past eight years of consistently identifying where the gaps are and then going around the world, trying to identify who are the best people in the world that do something and bringing them on board.
0: David Velez took on the big banks and financial services companies in Latin America as a relative newcomer. That required courage, his own courage, and courage in the people who joined this literal David versus Goliath quest. As he and his team interviewed their first batch of job applicants, they look for people hungry to challenge the status quo.
1: We started the company in a small house. And small house you would pass by, you wouldn't even imagine that somebody was working there. My co-founder lived in the second floor, had a dog. We, we, we spent a lot of time there. And we would invite people to interview. And there were two types of people that showed up. The first people, the first group would come in with their very nice suit and tie, ready to interview for a Sequoia-backed startup that wanted to uh, compete with big banks. And then they would go and see this house. And they would think, what a waste of my time. These kids are crazy. There's no way these kids in this house can compete with the biggest bank in Latin America. And then there was a second group of people that they would go in, ring the bell, come back in, sit with us for 30 minutes. We were telling them, yeah, we're about to go and disrupt the biggest industry in Latin America. Yes, we're going to go compete with the biggest companies. And you know what? If we fail, again, it's better to fail doing big things than small things. So what a great adventure, right? We're ready for the adventure. And people would say, I'm in. I'll be starting on Monday. So that house was the perfect filter. It created the perfect self-selection in that it biased the people that were courageous enough to go after these giants and go fight this fight. And so that DNA, let's call it the courageous gene, was part of those first 10, 15 employees, part of the culture. We then went and hired 100, 1,000, 5,000. And that has been a consistent value across the organization where we go and challenge the status quo. Now, people, of course, we, we run into trouble and we've had tough times. And what a specifically very hard time about a couple of years ago when one day we wake up and regulation had completely changed and there were real questions about whether we were going to subside. At that moment, one of the things that we do to address courage is first, see every one of these challenge as an opportunity to test ourselves and really test what we built so instead of us becoming frozen by the fear, we feel motivated because we wanna challenge ourselves, we wanna test ourselves. And the second was an opportunity to really build, reinforce that culture, putting everybody in the boat and go from this peacetime mentality to wartime mentality where we need to go together to, to figure out what we're going to do with this problem. And so it's also how you behave in the face of adversity and showing people that there are different ways to behave, not being a hostage, but being empowered that you start building these, really re- rebuilding this, this value of courage across the organization. purpose to fight complexity to empower people. First, we are about empowering people. We were very mad. We're upset about these big companies, not only banks, big companies that ultimately take their customers as hostage and use a lot of complexity, a lot of fees to keep them even more hostages. And you end up with consumers that don't have the information to make the right decision for their lives. So... We discussed a lot, we decided ultimately the enemy was gonna be complexity in financial services and beyond. And and that's what really brings people passion for what they do. And and I think there's a very, very unique uh, opportunity to really work in a a, a business that has passion and that redefines what you're doing on a day-to-day
0: basis. So David, what do you have to say to the cynics? There's a lot of people who are cynical about purpose because they've seen enough companies pretend to have a purpose It's usually some nice statement about, I want to make the world a better place. I want to improve the life of my customer. I want to help the planet. And they kind of cloak themselves in that purpose. What do you say to people like that? Saying, ah, David, I don't believe this. You know, I've heard that before. Come on, every bank has a purpose. And they always say something about helping customers.
1: Yeah, well, I, I would say that it is true that there are a lot of organizations that claim to have a purpose and they don't have it. It's similarly to the conversation around customer obsession. Now, everybody has customer obsessions, but there are organizations that do have real purposes. And I think for us, at least, what I can tell you about us, about Nubank is, is in that deck since the very early days. And it really drives everything that, 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 that drives our company. And you can go talk to any of our employees any of the 6,000 people around the world and you ask them, what do you do? And they will repeat this purpose and they will go and execute products and consumer conversations and they will treat customers in ways that are consistent with this purpose and with those values.
0: Do you think people come to work for you because of your purpose? Do you think they say, I wanna come work for a New Bank, not only because it's a digital company and doing all these great things, but I really connect personally it makes my life, I feel more proud of working here. It makes me feel like I'm living my own life purpose because I get to be in a place which is doing these big things.
1: I I think so. I really do. Uh, I think people, I think the time to go for a nine to six job, especially for the young demographics is over. People do not want to just go do that and get a paycheck. I think people need to feel that they're part of something bigger than themselves and work with great people, smart people that are all feel part of, of a mission that goes beyond, uh, that, that goes beyond just getting a paycheck, and um, and that is consistent. Actually, with building a great business, there, that's the thing. I think a lot of people also tend to to address or to think about this question as being almost like a zero-sum game, where if I have a purpose, I'm going to make less money. And in fact, it's actually if you have a purpose, you're going to make more money in the long run. In the short run, there will be conflicts. There was definitely conflicts, but or at least our insight or belief is in the long run, those two are perfectly aligned. And that's why is a is a great opportunity and a great opportunity for retention and a great opportunity to create a uh, to create a scale scalable culture that has a bigger reason to exist than simply go from a billion in net income this year to 1.5 billion in net income next year to 2 billion of net income the following year, which in a way is the way a lot of the banks have operated for a very long time.
0: So how do you help people think about short-term and long-term? Because you're right, there's this inherent trade-off and people sometimes presume that a lot of people like Larry Fink and others have promoted that you should have a purpose, but that's long-term, but I got to deliver quarterly short-term results. And now that I'm a public company, the pressures are even greater because now I have to really deliver numbers. How does, do you think having a purpose is a way to communicate also clearly that, look, we are making these choices because they have long-term benefit it's part of who we are. How do you connect short and long-term in your mind as a business leader?
1: Yeah, so I think it begins with that, th- that insight that I mentioned, which is it's, it's, a, it's a, call it a hypothesis, a belief, uh, which is you will win. Whoever wins in an industry is whoever provides the best product and service for consumers. Whoever is chosen by consumers. Consumers have the choice. Very simple insight. In reality, that really means that you have to work every single day to build the absolutely very best product. It's a bit what Jeff Bezos say. I don't know how things, what consumers will look like ten years from now, but I know they will want better products at lower cost. And ultimately, if a consumer is empowered and have choices, they will pick whoever treats them best, gives them a lower price, and gives them a better product. And after three, four years, we started to realize that there were a significant percentage of customers that we could not approve because the interest rate was too low. The risk was too high. And that the best thing that we could do to be able to increase the business was to increase the interest rate. And and so you could say, we had a lot of debate with with our employees, like, isn't this inconsistent with a consumer obsession? Why are you increasing interest rates if you're prioritizing uh, our consumer obsession? It's like we're prioritizing consumer obsession in the long run. If we keep interest rate low, we'll reach perhaps half a million consumers, maybe a million. If we're able to increase this interest rate by this level, we can go to 50 million consumers. So the impact or the long run is much larger. And that's why in the short term, we might actually need to sacrifice a bit consumer exp- expression so that we can in the long run have more impact and and, uh, and a bit opportunity. So a lot of these trade-offs are complex and, The way to do it, I think, is just have a constant conversation with the company, with everybody, trying to look at some of these debates, some of these traders from every different angle and get comfort that we really are optimizing for the long run.
0: Customer obsession is a mantra a lot of highly successful businesses use today. It's widely seen as a key to Amazon's remarkable success, and it's a core principle at Newbank.
1: Customer obsession is, as you say, a lot of people are talking about it today, but it's similar to any other cultural value that companies have. Uh, the, The real values are the way you behave, not the way you talk. It's actions speak louder than words. And for us, this was a value that we, in the early days, when we had about three people, we set up a a, a culture deck. We sat that together one afternoon, put together a culture presentation that had effectively the five values of Nubank. And one was that consumer obsession. We went customer to love us fanatically. And we almost, you know, did a pact of blood that that was going to be driving every single decision in the company. Because we deeply believe that while in the short term, sometimes there might be conflicts between prioritizing the customer, and prioritizing profitability or short-term results, in the long run, those two things are perfectly aligned. Because ultimately, in a world of options, consumers can choose. And consumer, consumers will ultimately choose is treating them better and offering better products. So that was the logic of picking that value as number one. And then it was all about building an organization that went back to those principles every single day and in every single decision. I'll give you one example that, that to me, we have many of these, but I'll give you one specific example I think talks a lot. About a year ago, one day an analyst comes and says, we're making more money per customer. We're seeing revenue go up on a, on a cohort basis. And people start asking like, what, what happened? And, and we went and looked. And it turns out that there had been a bug in the system and somebody had removed an email that reminded the customer to pay on time. And because they removed that, people were paying more late fees. It was really easy for everybody in the organization to know what to do, which was put that email back and go back to the customers that we overcharged, apologize to them, tell them that they shouldn't have paid that, that it was our mistake and give the money back. It was the easiest conversation. And it was the easiest conversation because there was a cultural value that gave everybody in the organization the permission to act that way. I can bet you whatever you want that a lot of companies, especially banks today, would have the same situation, they would not have acted that way. Even the ones that say cultural obsession, they would have not acted that way because it's easy to say it, it's hard when you're faced with those actual dilemmas of making more money or prioritizing the customer. But if you think about it, that those customers received that email and said, wow, how different is NoBank?" They're telling me, I, I, if they, they didn't need to tell me this, I wouldn't even have realized it. It was my fault for being late. But they're telling me proactively that I overpaid and they gave me the money back. The value of that interaction is worth more than points, that fees, that a lot of TV advertising and the Super Bowl is more is worth more for any customer than, than than anything else. So that is why uh, I think beyond the value and, and having the clarity of the value at the beginning, probably the most important part is scaling the organization, being very vigilant that We are acting the way we're supposed to be acting.
0: I want to ask you about your purpose now. Tell me about how your, and most of us, I don't know how you feel, but I feel my purpose has evolved over time. Tell me how, what is your purpose in life? And how does that fit into what you're doing right now? I'd say my purpose has, I've been been able to
1: crystallize it over the past 10 years. And I've come to realize that to me, what matters is first is impact. That to me is the key word. I want to make sure that every minute, every hour, every day counts, right? That there is an impact, that I've done something, that I moved something. To me, time is something that is gonna go away too fast. We are, we're minutes, we're alive for minutes really. And so impact being an impactful life means a lot. And then ultimately kind of the crystallization that I've been made over the past few years is impact ultimately means for me, building a better society, impacting people's lives, living the world a bit a little bit better than the way we found it. Uh, I, I don't know necessarily why I came to that conclusion. I think perhaps it's a lot of what I heard from my family, with my parents, the, the, the necessity or the importance of giving back, of, of, of building, of being a positive force in society. But to me, that impact today is very much correlated with Seeing that I'm working, my day-to-day work ultimately translates in making more people better, live a better life.
0: David and his wife, Mariel Reyes, have committed to building a better society by giving away their fortune, estimated by Forbes to be $4.3 billion. Mariel is a Peruvian economist who launched a startup that teaches computer programming to vulnerable women in Brazil, especially Black and transgender women. I asked David what led Mariel and him to take the so-called giving pledge.
1: So listen, I'll be super, super frank about the, the success of Nubank is, is is something that I never imagined could happen. My wife neither. We don't come from wealthy families. Uh, we never we had everything we always needed, but we never lived in in in, a, in an environment of luxury and. And frankly, the, the huge success of NoBank that happened so quickly caught us completely by surprise. And one day, about a year ago, we started realizing that those, that stock is worth a lot of money and that, that created a big conversation. And, and what do we want to do with this? What was the right way to, to take advantage of this opportunity? Because ultimately, it feels, it feels like an opportunity. And, and we went through a, a bit of a logic, a lot of thinking process, and we concluded that the right thing to for us to do was give it all while we're still alive. And I'll give you very briefly a bit of the logic. Number one, it is literally impossible for anybody to spend this kind of money. I think capitalism is the best system that has ever been invented and is responsible for an incredible amount of poverty reduction around the world. But the reality is that the system creates extreme outcomes. And these are extreme outcomes that a bit inefficient to society because it's actually impossible even if you tried it's actually impossible to spend the amount of money that that some of these companies create so number one you can't spend all of this money even if you tried. number two we will die who knows any minute now we don't know and we cannot take it with us there is an end no matter how much money you have you will die as everybody else and you cannot take it with you number three we do not want to leave it to our kids. We don't, we don't just don't like the, the, the thought process of, of creating a, uh, a, an entire legion of, of generations that will benefit from this. We will give to our kids everything that they need to live a great life, but we don't think that leaving a bunch of money to them is the right thing for their character because ultimately, when we look back, we think that adversity made us stronger. At best, adversity build character and we don't want to take that away from our kids. So we want them to struggle a bit and we don't want to spoil them with a bunch of money. So number three, we don't want to give it to our kids. And number four, there is a lot of pain in the world. There is a lot of people that don't have to eat, that have been waiting for six months to get a surgery in a hospital that don't know how to put their kids to school. There's just a lot of there's a lot of pain, the Latin pain today, today, not 10 years from now, not 40 years from now. Today, so you follow that logic, those four points, you cannot spend it all, you cannot take it with you, you don't wanna give it to the kids, and there is a lot of pain. To me, that equation equals, well, then let's give it all to the people that actually can use it. Let's allocate this capital that society owns on society's behalf on a better way than simply leaving it somewhere, yielding some interest rates for the next 40 years. And since the pain happens today, We should start today. What's the point in waiting four decades? We can start doing today.
0: My guest has been David Velez, founder of the largest digital bank in Latin America, NewBank. He spoke with me from Rio de Janeiro, David has three points of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. Do your homework, be excited about the journey, not just the destination, and be willing to work really hard. To that, I would add, have a deep sense of purpose and a real source of courage. This is Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. My website has all of my conversations with leaders in business who are navigating the 21st century environment you can also find out about my book titled Deep Purpose. Companies that are serious about establishing and working towards a deep purpose find that it delivers game-changing results for the workers, the shareholders, and the larger society. So visit with me at deeppurpose.net. This podcast is produced by Stephen Smith with help from Lauren Modelski, Melissa Duncan, Craig MacDonald, and John Bath. The theme music is by Gary Meister. I am Ranjay Gulati.